we don't know how to live without those concepts in some form and fairy tales can help us externalize them and make a little more sense of them. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Karen Yulo. She is the author of two award-winning novels, Jennifer the Damned and Cinderella, which is now in development as a motion picture with Believe Entertainment. She holds an MFA in screenwriting from the University of Southern California and is a founding editor of Chrism Press. She served for more than three years as managing editor of the Catholic literary journal Dappled Things. She lives in Louisiana with her husband and two sons, where she works full-time as the music director of a Catholic parish. You can find her work on the web at KarenYulo.com. My guest today is Karen Yulo. And Karen, I'm so excited about the literature you've brought for us. Why don't you go ahead and share? Okay, this is from the Grimm's Fairy Tales version of Cinderella. You cannot come with us, for you have no proper clothes and cannot dance. You would put us to shame. Then she turned her back on poor Cinderella and made haste to set out with her two proud daughters. And as there was no one left in the house, Cinderella went to her mother's grave under the hazel bush and cried, Little tree, little tree, shake over me, that silver and gold may come down and cover me. Then the bird threw down a dress of gold and silver and a pair of slippers embroidered with silk and silver. And in all haste, she put on the dress and went to the festival. But her stepmother and sisters did not know her and thought she must be a foreign princess. She looked so beautiful in her golden dress. Of Cinderella, they never thought at all and supposed that she was sitting at home and picking the lentils out of the ashes. The king's son came to meet her and took her by the hand and danced with her. And he refused to stand up with anyone else so that he might not be obliged to let go her hand. And when anyone came to claim it, he answered, she is my partner. And when the evening came, she wanted to go home but the prince said he would go with her to take care of her, for he wanted to see where the beautiful maiden lived. But she escaped him and jumped up into the pigeon house. Then the prince waited until the father came and told him the strange maiden had jumped into the pigeon house. The father thought to himself, it surely cannot be Cinderella, and called for axes and hatchets and had the pigeon house cut down, but there was no one in it. And when they entered the house, there sat Cinderella in her dirty clothes among the cinders, and a little oil lamp burnt dimly in the chimney. For Cinderella had been very quick and had jumped out of the pigeon house again and had run to the hazel bush. And there she had taken off her beautiful dress and had laid it on the grave, and the bird had carried it away again. And then she had put on her little gray kirtle again and had sat down in the kitchen among the cinders. Well, that's a little different from Walt Disney, isn't it? Isn't it, though? So, wow, the imagery in that. 
I mean, it's still reminiscent of the Cinderella that most of us are used to, and yet a completely different story. There, It gets even more different later in the tale, and I chose not to read the gory parts so that I wouldn't turn anyone off, but it it's a much darker version of Cinderella than the one we know from Disney, which is taken from the Charles Perrault version. And it has, like you said, some beautiful imagery. And in particular, I love the grave with the hazel bush and the birds, as you know, because you've read my version of Cinderella and that's where it came from. Yes. Now, where were you in your life when you encountered Grimm's version of this tale? I think I was probably in high school. I I was trying to remember that. And I really am not quite sure when I first picked up the Grimm's fairy tales, but I think I was probably either toward the end of high school or somewhere early in college. And a lot of Grimm's fairy tales make no sense at all. Like you could pick up the volume of Grimm's fairy tales and there are stories that just the plot is so bizarre. <laughs> like things the characters do seem so completely random when they cut off in the middle of a story is like, what? That was the end. But not Cinderella. That one is actually quite interesting. And very different from the one that we know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And who did you say wrote the other version of Cinderella, the one we're more familiar with in our culture? Charles Perrault. He was a French author of the, I want to say 17th century, could have been early 18th. I forgot exactly. But he's the one who wrote most of the versions of fairy tales that we're familiar with. He's the one that has been most adapted by Disney. So the Sleeping Beauty, the Beauty and the Beast, the Rapunzel stories, things like that that you know are mostly from Charles Perrault. Okay. How would you contrast that culturally and time-wise? Where did the Grimm brothers come from? Some of the Grimm's tales are actually later, and they were collected. Uh, Perrault was French, so his came mostly from France, and the Grimm's brothers came mostly from Germany and the Germanic-speaking countries, but they were collected from all over the place, which is the same in the case of Perot, but he did more of his own crafting of stories based on other stories. So his really are his, but based on other tales, uh, whereas the Grimm's brothers are collections that they picked up from whoever they encountered. And that's why there's a bit more of the variety in Grimm's where you have these stories that make no sense, but then you also have some real gems in there as well. Right. So basically drawn from an oral tradition of storytelling more than likely? Yes. Well, how can you possibly have culture without written language? I'm joking, of course. (laughs) (laughs) That's something I've encountered in some of my history research for my own novel is this whole idea that some people imply that there is no civilization and there is no culture without written language. And I'm like, what? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't because all these stories, all of this art, cave drawings, our storytelling, that these came from somewhere. These came from human experiences and historical experiences and the human heart that we've got story written in our DNA and then we live it out in the world and share it. Exactly. And we share it in all kinds of ways, not just in writing, but in oral storytelling, in painting, in dance, in music. All of those are rooted in story. Or or theater or even motion pictures. All yeah, of it. Yeah. All of it. 
and that they all speak to the heart in a different way. Exactly. Why do you think that's specifically important when it comes to fairy tales? What makes fairy tales specifically so key? Fairy tales work, a lot of people talk about fairy tales working on archetypes, you know, that they really express a vision that that it is somehow intrinsic to human nature. You know, the dragon that you have to slay to overcome can, can symbolize almost any kind of trial that you have, that people have in their lives. And you know, the good knight being virtue, the princess in need of saving, well, who, who, you all need salvation. That's a basic Christian principle. If people talk about fairy tales as being rooted in archetypes and these basic human concepts that we we don't know how to live without those concepts in some form and fairy tales can help us externalize them and make a little more sense of them but then again like I said sometimes fairy tales are just so odd (laughs) that you go what (laughs) so I think they serve a very important role but at the same time I also think we have to remember that they are just stories and and take them for what they are. It's okay for them to just be fun. That makes sense to me. And I like how you talk about the archetypes. That's actually something I've been learning about and just listening to a podcast that's talking just about all the different archetypes and character arcs that can exist in a story. And I'm just blown away by, like you were saying, how this is so rooted in the human experience, but also in even modern psychology, but that it's not strictly psychological. Right. There's definitely a spiritual dimension to it. And Mm. then certainly see that in fairy tales too, because they do come mostly from an oral tradition and they certainly come from before the enlightenment and the era of science and everything must depend on reason. These These are the stories of people who are searching for meaning. And who believe that that meaning exists beyond themselves. And maybe that's the reason why it almost by necessity includes these little bits of magic or something supernatural is it's the reflection of that thing that's beyond just simple human experience. Yes, absolutely. Beyond the physical. Absolutely. There's so much symbolism in fairy tales that it's almost fair to say that they're almost purely symbolic in many cases. And then you wonder about the nonsensical ones and why are they nonsensical? Yeah. And I can't claim to be a scholar, so there probably are reasons, but I haven't delved into them. I'm not a fairy tale scholar. I just like fairy tales. So if you, but if you delved into the history behind them, I'm sure that there probably are reasons why the stories evolved the way that they evolved. And some of them are probably nonsense simply because they're nonsense. And they were written down because the Grimm brothers found them and said, hey, let's put this in. But really, it was just some lady who made up a story, you know. I know one fairy tale that I saw performed as an opera, and I think it had something to do with Blackbeard. But there was a lot to be going on in translation because I believe the opera was in like Polish. And I was watching it with Spanish subtitles in Chile. (laughs) And and I am not fluent in Spanish. I definitely caught on enough to be able to follow the storyline, but that was a, a mental challenge to say the least. But I think the moral of the story, it was the story where the woman marries the pirate 
And then he's off on a trip and he says, don't go in all the locked rooms while I'm gone. And she goes in the locked rooms and finds all the this bloodbath, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Which seems pretty common in the Grimm's fairy tales versions from what I recall. There's a lot of bloodbaths going on. I, I chose not to read the part of the story where the stepsisters cut off, one cuts off her toe and the other cuts off her heel to try to fit into the slipper. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm I'm kind of like... <laughs> The the blood the bloodbath thing and and so the only moral I could get from that story it was not don't go into locked rooms it was probably be don't marry a pirate yeah I think that's a good moral <laughs> <laughs> so now that we've established that you know I love the way that you look at story and I was really excited to have you on the show and I read your own adaptation of Cinderella entitled Cinderalia. When did you write Cinderalia? I published it in 2017. And so I wrote it, I think, between about 2014 and 2017. What drew you to write a fairy tale, a retelling of a fairy tale? So the story behind Cinderalia is actually quite hilarious. Because once upon a time, back when I was in my mid to late 20s, some friends and I who were all you know, out of school, working, and we'd known each other forever. We decided to have a sleepover. I think it was for New Year's, but at any rate. And none of us had boyfriends at the time. And none of us were married, even though we were well into our 20s. And we said, what's up with this? Fairy tales promised us princes. Where are they? This was like three in the morning, mind you. And we probably had a little bit to drink. And we decided that well, I wonder if he got killed before we could ever meet him. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe his guardian angel went on vacation and we came up with this whole ridiculous story and we called it My Prince Got Whacked by a Crack Dealer. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we came up with this absolutely ridiculous story for why none of us had found our Prince Charming. And I actually, because I was shortly out of film school at the time, I actually wrote a screenplay with that title. Nobody needs to read it. It's terrible. (laughs) So I had this idea of, you know, here's the princess waiting for her prince, but he's dead. Sorry, sister. And so years later, after I was happily married and had children, (laughs) I came back to that idea and I said, okay, I'm not going to write this as a silly modern thing, but there really is something here in this idea of what do you do with a princess if her prince is dead and he can't save her now? Now what? And I took that silly guardian angel on vacation thing and I said, not only is he dead, it's her fairy godmother's fault. Now what? And so that was the inspiration for Cinderella. Well, and I think that's actually a really interesting theme that now what? I think that that's so relatable because so many of us think, yep, I've got it all in line. We, we think this. We should know better, but we think this. Yep, I've got it all planned out. Everything's going to be fine. I'm in control. And then tragedy hits and we end up in this semi-permanent derailment or it feels permanent in the moment. Right. And where do you go from there? Exactly. So that was 
you know, and I've ever since then, anytime I tell people, you know, oh, I wrote a Cinderella adaptation. Well, who hasn't written a Cinderella adaptation? They kind of roll their eyes at me and they say, well, what makes yours different? And I say, Prince Charming dies on page one and their eyes get wide. <laughs> like, what? How did, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was definitely an eye opener for me, but I loved it because all of a sudden it takes you out of all of the tropes that you were expecting. Right. And yet they're all there. Mm-hmm. It's still truly a fairy tale. It was it was fun. And like I said, it eventually became a much more serious, not serious in the sense of like, oh, heavy and dark, but serious in the sense of no longer a comedy. But it, it came from a very silly idea. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And you, you said that you went to film school, that you were shortly out of film school when the whole original idea popped up. And I know you told me that the film rights to Cinderella have actually been picked up. Yes. Even though not your screenplay, but your novel. Right. And I can totally see how that would happen because the book is so visual. It's so visual. Do you think that your film background influences how you write? Absolutely. 100%. There, I would not be the writer I am today except for that master's degree in screenwriting. Now, there's a lot of other things that go into it. But definitely my approach is a very cinematic approach because that's what I was trained to do. And it, it definitely appeals. It, it definitely appeals and gives people just the vast world that it's existing in without taking up so much mental energy that you lose the flow of the plot. Does that make sense? Yes, because I am not. Uh, people always tell me that my work is cinematic, and I do believe it is. But at the same time, I am not a descriptive writer at all. My first degree is in music. I'm a musician. I do everything auditorily. I'm not a super visual person. So I keep everything as minimal as I can. And that's actually a screenwriting trick too, is when you're writing a screenplay, you don't give massive amounts of description because there are going to be other people involved. You're going to have a costume designer. You're going to have a set designer. You're going to have a director who are going to make the final decisions on what things actually look like, but you have to give just enough so that they know what to do. Mm. So I do the same things in my books. I give you just enough so that you can imagine it and bring your own self to it. But you're not going to find pages and pages of description in my books. I don't do that. Yeah, I, I think it is it is descriptive enough, like I said, to give a rich world, but it doesn't take four chapters to get no. there. <laughs> that kind of thing bores me to tears, so I wouldn't write it. <laughs> And your other book that you already have out is called Jennifer the Damned. And that, why don't you just explain a little bit of that story to us? So that one is actually my first novel. It's my debut. It came out in 2015. And there again, I like to take things that don't belong together and put them together, like Cinderella with a dead prince. Jennifer the Damned is actually, it doesn't say this anywhere on the cover, but it is really an adaptation of Crime and Punishment, where Raskolnikov is a female vampire living in the modern age, 16 years old, and she's in a convent. She's been raised by nuns because she's an orphan. People, again, I like to take things, put, put things together that don't belong together <laughs> and see where I can go. I was really teaching myself how to write novels when I was writing that at the same time that I was coming up with this story and allowing 
my faith to be part of my work for the first time in a real sense. So people have often told me that there's nothing else like it. And I, I don't say that in a way of like, oh, I'm the greatest. I just, it's true. There's nothing else like it. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I will leave up to my readers to decide. <laughs> but it's, it's a story of a teenage vampire raised by nuns and it's based on crime and punishment. <laughs> what was it like, you know, delving into that first experience of having your faith influence your writing? Terrifying, especially because of the particular story I was writing. I wouldn't say it was the first time I ever let my faith influence my writing. I did have a screenplay I did in film school that brought in some faith elements too. But it was the first time I'd done it in a novel, and it was certainly the first time I'd done it in a horror novel, which gothic horror has, is a genre that I've been very interested in since I was in high school and been in love with, especially because I find it to be a very spiritual genre and one that is deeply capable of revealing the nature of the war between good and evil. But as I was writing that, I was really very isolated in terms of being a Catholic writer at the time, I didn't have the, the support structure that I have now with all the friends that I've made out in the world who are also fellow Catholic writers. And sitting down having, you know, a vampire lusting after the blood of Christ, it's blasphemous. And it is intentionally blasphemous. But at the same time, as I'm, you know, as I'm writing this, and I know where it go, where the story goes in my mind, and I know that I'm writing it from a place of deep faith, but I'm still kind of sitting at my computer trembling and going, "Please don't strike me with lightning bolts! Please don't strike me with lightning bolts!" <laughs> and having no idea what anybody else, how they, anybody else would receive it in the wider world, particularly in the Catholic world, and I was very pleasantly surprised to find out that. Other people saw it the way that I saw it. So how can you reveal what is good, true, and beautiful through the gothic horror genre? Oh, <laughs> in every possible... Gothic horror is wonderful because you get to incarnate monsters. But that also means that you can incarnate light and goodness too, if you want to. You can take the very worst and the very best of human nature and give it a body that isn't a human one where we all bring our own assumptions to it. You can give it the body of Frankenstein's monster. You can give it the body of a vampire. You can give it the body of Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame and bring, you can make ideas that are abstract, concrete, and then watch them play out on a stage. The possibilities for symbolism in Gothic horror are infinite. And because it is by its nature dealing with monstrosity and sin, you also get the opportunity to deal with, there's only two ways that goes. It either goes to nihilism, which is what you get with most modern horror, where there is no answer to this monstrosity, or it goes to redemption, which is what all the classics either point toward or give you. They either give you, here's where it could have gone if the characters had chosen it, which would be Frankenstein. There's definitely the possibility of redemption, but the characters reject it. Or you get, here's the redemption that comes, which would be Dracula, where you actually have the happy ending and the moment of sun shining through the darkness. I love horror. 
for precisely that reason. But I only love the horror that's not nihilistic. I can't stand the nihilistic stuff. I don't need any more reasons to be downtrodden and miserable in my life. <laughs> but it has so much potential to bring people up and to reveal our own blindnesses and sins and show us how to fix them. Or who can fix them. Exactly. Why do you think there is such a nihilistic focus on modern fiction and specifically in the horror genre? Because people don't know who, as you said, who can fix them. They've turned away from God. And it's even in horror is the one place where you still see Catholic priests as heroes all the time. And it's normal and expected. And one of two things will happen in the story. Either the priest is able to expel whatever the force of darkness that they're fighting in that one is, or he fails and he's their last shot. And that's where the nihilism comes in is that somewhere deep in our cultural bones, we know that Catholicism is our last gasp for salvation. Like that's it. If that doesn't work, nothing works. And then it's just, okay, do you accept it? Do you understand that Christ really is here and he has the power to work through the church and bring us home to goodness? Or do you reject it and say, well, if that don't work, nothing will, <laughs> you know? And then that leaves you with nothing but nihilism. And that's where it comes from is because so much of our society has reached that point of, well, I don't believe that does work. So now there's nothing left. It's just a frightening feeling. I mean, it's not where I'm at or you're at, but I mean, just putting myself in those shoes it's momentarily. Terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. And that was what I had to do when I was writing Jennifer for the Damned, because that was where my character was, was to put myself in those shoes. And one of the things that I did in that book was take nihilism to its logical extreme. And it's not fun. <laughs> well, and, and its logical extreme is really I mean, the thing about nihilism and this idea that none of it matters, I mean, this is not like a slippery gradual slope, that it's a cliff. It that is. You go from anything mattering to nothing mattering in a split second. Exactly. Yes. So how do we combat this in the arts? Clearly, you're trying to do it through your creative means. How do you think that we can cause a paradigm shift from the nihilism to hope? We have to make hope believable. People have lost faith because they don't find anything compelling or believable about either Christianity itself or what they perceive Christianity to be, which is more often the case. Usually they don't have a clear picture, but we have to make hope believable. And that's really hard to do in a society as jaded as ours because we are a very jaded people. We are all about the snark. We are all about the sarcasm. And I freely admit to being very high up on that scale myself. I'm, I'm good at sarcasm. But if we can't find a way through whatever means we're using, whether it's our artistic endeavors, our evangelistic endeavors, whatever, if we can't find a way to make hope believable, then people reject it out of hand. You have to give them something that says, that rings true enough to their experience that they can say, you know, maybe that person isn't crazy for thinking that there's a way out. 
I can't help but thinking as you're talking about this, that it means that the responsibility to hope lies on the shoulders of every single Christian. Amen. If we don't hope, who will? That's a kind of frightening prospect. Exactly. But what else is there to hope for if not salvation through Christ? If you take that possibility away and just leave us with the material world, my goodness, nihilism starts to look really good really fast. (laughs) Well, I would hope we would at least have a stop in hedonism first, you know. Well, we pro- and, and that's probably where we are as a culture right now, is we're, we're on the stop at hedonism rather than having fallen completely off the cliff into nihilism. But it's certainly what comes next if you can't find a way to hope. Like you said, you think that that's where our culture is, is on the cusp between hedonism and nihilism. I've read books where it just tries to push hedonism further. Oh, yeah. And further, saying that we're not satisfied because we need to push hedonism and human pleasure my way, right or wrong, further, and that then we'll find joy. But it's like, if we apply scientific method, just basic, you know, no philosophy, no theology, just scientific method to this, it would dictate that our our attempts seem to somewhat be lacking, and that maybe furthering that scale isn't going to bring us that happiness we're looking for. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, and I, I've heard Peter Kraft re- refer to it as moral schizophrenia, I believe is how he terms it, that we keep doing things that make us unhappy. And so we determine that we need to do more of them. Right. And, and hope for something else to happen. It really is crazy. And yet it's what people, it, it seems to be how we're wired as humans. Okay, one sexual encounter didn't satisfy me, but maybe two will. Like, mm-hmm. There's just something in our brains that tells us this, even though we have the capability to look at it logically and go, hmm, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and even when we take, a step, take that step back and look at things logically, there's something in our brain that just keeps saying, no, but try it again. Something in our heart, too, that tells us, yeah, try that again. And we know precisely who that is. Right. And we want to talk about horror. It's horror incarnate. Exactly. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, because I felt like this would be something you'd be knowledgeable about, is we talk about horror, we talk about gothic. How do you feel like paranormal and occult type ideas in literature have a relationship with that? Again, it depends how it's handled. For example, we have, I'm one of the editors of Chrism Press, and we have a book out. I believe you interv- interviewed Eleanor Burton Nicholson about Brother Wolf. I did. So she has beautiful use of the occult and pagan gods in that book. But they are presented through a very Catholic lens where this pagan goddess, Artemis Diana, whatever you want to call her, she has many different names throughout history, is a demon. Plain and simple. And she's an active participant in the story. And she wears all the guises the demons like to wear. But she's a demon, plain and simple. And she needs to be fought and exorcised and overcome. Period. So there's that approach, which, as Catholics, how can we find fault with that? Is literally Catholic theology. But then there are other approaches where people will put a spin on things and make something symbolic rather than literal. 
And those can work too. They're trickier, but they can work too. And that's what I did with Jennifer the Damned is my vampire is a symbol for fallen men. Her sinfulness is our sinfulness, just embodied in a different way. So you can use them and you just have to be careful how. You don't ever want to promote something like that as good, obviously, because that would be antithetical to the faith. But you can use them in your stories. You just have to make sure that the way in which you're using them is commensurate with the message you want to send and with the way you want people to respond to the book. And how do you think we could help, as an example, the genre of paranormal romance is like skyrocketing in the secular viewpoint and that there's a lot of curiosity about the occult in general in our culture, sadly? How do we get people off the ramp of that ideology and into recognizing the fallenness of trying to meddle in those things? When people are going to the occult for answers, when they're looking at it as some sort of legitimate choice, here again, that's just human nature reaching beyond itself, looking for anything beyond the material, beyond what we know as the scientific, quote unquote, real world. And we have to help them see that what they're looking for can't be found there. What they're looking for can only be found through Christ. And here again, you have to make it believable and recognizable, whether it's an artistic venture or an evangelistic venture, you have to make it believable and recognizable to them as the thing that will fill that hole. You know, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I don't think people are going to paranormal romance and dabbling in the occult because they think they're not looking at it as a replacement for religion because they haven't realized that that's what they're looking for yet. And we have to take what is essentially a good impulse to look outside yourself and find something beyond and help them see how to channel it in a way that's toward the way, you know, with a capital W. And do you think that good fiction would be one of these ways we can reach out and evangelize? Absolutely. Because people, you know, the suspension of disbelief that we talk about when you approach fiction, because you have that initial understanding, either between author and reader or between filmmakers and audience, whatever the the format that the fiction takes is you have the understanding of an implicit suspension of disbelief that I'm going to put aside my prejudices for an hour or two or five or however many it takes to consume that particular media and follow you through your story. And I'm going to be able to believe for now that fairies are real. And I'm going to be able to believe for now that vampires are real. And I'm going to be able to believe for now that demons are real you have that initial suspension of disbelief where prejudice doesn't go away completely. We're only willing to take it so far, but we do have an understanding that we're open to things in fiction that we're not going to be open to in the real world. And therefore it provides us with an opportunity to reach the imagination, to evangelize the imagination, to anoint the imagination with something life-giving and hopeful that they wouldn't necessarily want to receive in a lecture 
in a nonfiction book, in a place where they had to have their reason engaged. Well, and I think you can engage reason in fiction as well, but I think in some ways, fiction or even narrative nonfiction, it's a more holistic, integrated experience. Exactly. And I didn't mean to imply that you don't use reason in fiction, because of course you do. But you have that initial understanding that I'm going to let go. And I'm not going to bring every single prejudice that I carry in my daily life to this book or this movie or this play or whatever, because it's fiction. I'm going to allow you room to create. And we have to use that to create within our audiences, as well as within ourselves while we're making the art. And maybe this is why fiction is so integral to empathy, is because it it gives us that space to set aside our preconceived notions, our personal experiences, temporarily or partially, and to enter into the experience of other. That's exactly right. That's why fiction is so powerful. Of a, I don't, I, I don't even want to call it a tool. It's just, an, it's a powerful experience when you can enter into the lives of the characters and stop being yourself for just a little while and become that person or those people, depending on how the story is told. And enter into their lives and their experience and say, you know, maybe it's not all about me. Was this some of your motivation for starting Chrism Press? It's some of my motivation just for writing in general. Chrism Press, I think that's certainly part of our philosophy in terms of the fiction that we want to publish and promote. I'm not sure if it entered as much into the founding of it as as it is just sort of a, a baseline of what we believe as storytellers. Storytelling. That I keep coming back to the fact that that's one thing that truly makes humans unique in all of creation. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and God spoke us into being. We There's a sense in which we are story, and it really is what makes us unique. Mm. I'm just sitting and stewing in that for a second. <laughs> Stew away. I'm making all of these connections between the word, the storyteller, back to our whole idea of what does human culture mean? What does human civilization mean? The stories that we've been consuming in the post-postmodern era. Do you think that most fiction written by Christians is preaching to the choir, or do you feel like it's evangelizing the world? I don't know if I have enough of a frame of reference to speak to most. I definitely think that both things happen. I think both things have value too, because we have to remember that just because you're reaching a Christian or a Catholic audience, those people are every bit as much in need of conversion as others. We're supposed to be on a lifelong journey of continuing conversion. You know, just because you were baptized and confirmed and received Eucharist doesn't mean you're done. So wait, what? <laughs> we have to keep going and growing. And so I, I think both things are necessary and I think both things happen. And it, it's going to depend, of course, on who you actually manage to reach with any particular book as to whether you're doing one, the other or both. 
And I do think that both are good and both have, are necessary, that we need good stories that appeal to us as people who are already Christian and that help us grow in our faith, as well as stories that can reach out to the uncatechized, to the unconverted, and give them a glimpse of something greater that might make them curious to learn more. Well, and I think that that point of we're in a constant state of conversion, I think that that's important. And the other thing is, is sometimes we're battle weary. Oh, yes. (laughs) Even if the stories that we are consuming, the stories that we're trying to live are good and true and beautiful, that there's a lot of people out there who are really struggling, that our world, and it's not to say that we aren't struggling, I absolutely battle. The world that we're in, this nihilism, it's it's a constant struggle. Exactly. And sometimes that's why we need our fiction. People tend to ha- somehow along the way escape got a bad name in fiction as if escape was somehow not a worthy thing to do. And if your fiction didn't deal with, you know, heavy, cutting edge modern issues that apply to everyday life, somehow it wasn't worthy. But that's just a a completely backwards way of thinking about it. Because one thing that we should be able to look to fiction for is that escape from the heaviness of a world where we're in a pandemic and a war and, you know, an economic recession and this and that and the other thing. Let's go fight some dragons for a while. Let's take a break. (laughs) (laughs) let's allow that space where we can rest and enjoy and at the same time be edified. How have you been edified by creating this work? Oh, goodness. I wouldn't be me. I wouldn't be the person that I am today without my writing. My, uh, I, I, my creative process is in many ways my prayer. It's how I grow. It's how I learn. And I always tell authors, you know, oh, how do we reach the people that how do we reach our audiences? And do we need what do we need to do to make this story appeal to whoever? First of all, you got to appeal to yourself. The first person who is touched by a story is the author. And if you're not growing and you're not learning and you're not enjoying it, at least some of the time, sometimes it's really darn hard and hard to enjoy. But if you're not letting God speak to you, how are you going to be his words to everybody else? That's always where I try to work from. I'm not going to pretend that I'm perfect and I do it all the time. But my stories have been very formative for me, both in their creation and then in their publication and then reaching out and meeting new people and finding people who respond to my words in ways that I never expected. It's amazing. It's all God. He's doing all that. He gave me a few little gifts and I have the obligation to use them and return them to him with interest, you know, just like the parable of the talents. And I pray, but that's what I'm able to do. I think that's beautiful. Thank you. So what are you currently working on? So I recently finished after four and a half years, a book about the French Revolution, it's, it has two settings, both revolutionary France and Spanish colonial Louisiana. So it's a comedy, right? <laughs> yep. All those severed heads. 
<laughs> no. Um, comedy is not my gift. I wish it were. I love comedy, but it is not my gift. And that one is currently with a few friends while I'm trying to figure out the best route forward with publishing it. Um, but I, so what's coming next is a lot of history that got entirely too current while I was writing it. It was incredibly freaky. (laughs) Wars have a way of doing that. They do. Don't start writing about the French Revolution right before an election cycle first. That's that's rule number one. And don't write lines like, after the plague came the war. Just don't do it. Because I did that. And then, oh gosh. <laughs> I wrote that before the war. Ugh. I don't like being a prophet. It's not fun. No. But that wasn't the intention. <laughs> It was. It really wasn't meant to be prophetic. It was meant to be historical. And so that's where I am now is as I've just come off of four and a half years of really intensive research and writing for this big historical epic. And now I'm taking a break and focusing on my editing while I figure out what my next project is going to be and while I figure out where I'm going to publish that one. Now, both of your other books that you have out were self-published, correct? No, uh, Jennifer the Damned was published by Wise Blood Books. Oh, okay. And then I self-published Cinderalia. All right. And between those two experiences, what push and pull are you experiencing with what to do with your current book, your current work? I'm not going to self-publish again. And I don't say that as any sort of knock on self-publishing. It was the right choice for me for that particular book at that particular time. I don't have any regrets about it. But this particular book it's it's just a bigger project it's a bigger book and it deserves the attention of a real publisher you know obviously i i work for a publisher i am part of chris and press and that is obviously a part of the conversation and all of my colleagues over there are trying to help me decide the best route for this particular book we're trying to figure out how to bring it to the widest audience possible because it it's just a totally different kind of book historical fiction has a broad audience, but a deep audience, if that makes sense. That you can draw a lot of people from a completely secular perspective with historical fiction. And that's kind of, that's definitely one of the hopes because with the French revolution, obviously there's a whole lot of Catholic stuff going on and it culminates in the September massacres and the martyrdom at Saint-Joseph-de-Carme where 114 priests and religious brothers and deacons and seminarians were martyred. So there's a lot of really deep Catholic themes running through the book. That's part of the struggle is historical does have that ability to bring things to a secular audience that sometimes other things don't because you can simply say, well, this really happened. (laughs) And people are like, okay, I'll go along with you because this really happened. Well, you know what you should do is to be more inclusive is you should definitely have some Buddhists involved in the French revolution. Um, (laughs) Some Zoroastrians um, that that we we need to, we need to make this more inclusive historical experience. Right. I should give the constitutional church of France. It's due. Um. (laughs) No, it sounds really exciting. It sounds really exciting. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a historical fiction geek myself, so I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been 
a work of a lot of labor and a lot of love, but it's something I'm very, very excited to share with the world. And I, you know, I'm, I'm as impatient as everyone else, but at the same time, I'm trying to take my time and, and, and figure out and discern what's truly right. Because you have to serve the work. Right. And that's, that's where the conversation is right now is how do, how do I serve this work and how, what's, what's the best way to go with it? So hopefully we'll find some clarity on that in the coming months. All right. And if someone wanted to follow your work, where would they find that? So my website is simply my name, Karen, K-A-R-E-N, U-L-L-O.com. I'm also on Facebook as Karen Ulo author. Those are the easiest places to find me. And if you're interested in my editorial work over at Chrism Press, yes, please come follow us as well. Chrism, C-H-R-I-S-M, press.com. That is devoted to Catholic and Orthodox fiction. And we have all kinds of fun stuff coming out and already out. So those would be the, the best places to come find me. All right. I know I've I've been blessed with having several of your authors on the show and I've had great conversations with them and really enjoyed their books. And I'm just so grateful. I am so grateful that Chrism has made a home for Catholic and Orthodox fiction. Thank you. Yes, we're crazy excited about the whole venture and just so pleased with the work that we've already been able to put out as well as super excited about the ones that we have coming up. Yeah, so that's where a lot of my creative energy is going these days is into books for Prism Press. Which, like I said, I am very grateful, not just as a host, but as a reader. Just engaging the imagination in that manner is is so important. And I And I find people who've actually ceased to read fiction because they've found a lot of what they find out and about in the world abhorrent. Yeah, and so there, uh, there's parts of their intellect and their heart that are hungry because of the the moral bankruptcy of some of our modern books. Well, and not just moral bankruptcy, but artistic bankruptcy too, because you get both. Oh, you went there. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I, I I'm not I'm not afraid to say it. There's a lot of bad books out there, and some of them are bad morally, and some of them are bad artistically, and some of them are bad both. We have to get, we have to move beyond that. We, we need to be able to feed the imagination because without it, what are we without our imaginations? Every great thing human beings have ever done, no matter what field it, it is in, it, even if it's science and engineering, it has to start in the imagination. You can't create a cell phone if somebody doesn't first say, wouldn't it be cool if we could communicate across distances with no wires? You have to imagine it first. And if we're not building and forming imaginations, then we're really losing out on a huge part of who we are as humans. I'm a veteran. And so as I'm watching the news out of Ukraine, which is painful for me, um, I kept looking for political and military solutions in my own mind for this horrific situation. And I kept coming up with a blank. Number one, it's not my job to come up with those kind of solutions. Um, My job is to pray. But the other thing is, is I realized that maybe there's something beyond the political and the military solutions to the situation. Maybe part of it is the creative solution. Maybe stories 
impact how this will end and how we'll move forward after this. I couldn't agree more. And that's not to take away from the political and the military, which obviously those are very important. Absolutely. But imagine a world, imagine, here's that word again, imagine a world where the people making the military and the political decisions have broad, loving, formed imaginations. You know, (laughs) what could they do if they were able to see beyond the material? Well, and I know I read somewhere that um, former Secretary of Defense Mattis, that his personal library exceeds 7,000 volumes. Well, that's good to know. Just the impact that reading that many books, and especially if they're quality books, which if you've read that many books, you probably know how to discern a decent book at that point. (laughs) I would imagine so. How that would inform your views of history, of culture, of the imagination. Right. Exactly. And I think we see a bit of that in Zelensky, too, because, of course, he's an actor and he's formed in the arts. And boy, does he have some creative solutions. (laughs) He does. And he knows how to impact people's emotions. Yes. He knows how to reach people. He's an incredible communicator. Yeah. And that comes out of that background in storytelling. I think you're right. And I've actually been watching um, the show that he starred in where he played the president, Servant of the People. It's on Netflix right now. Yeah, I have heard of it, but I haven't seen it. It's actually really well written, Karen. We've been enjoying it. And it's it's weird watching it as a writer and watching it as someone who loves history and watching it in light of current events. But I'm really pleased with how it's been able to hold tension between present slash historical realities and humor and human foibles. It's a good yarn, I have to say. Well, I might have to check it out. Yeah, I think so. It, th- I do want everybody to know there is a language warning, but um, <laughs> it, it, and, and so probably wouldn't show your kids, but uh, I find it to be really decent storytelling. At some points, it's poignant because of what's currently going on. And at other points, it's this is going to sound awful, but hilarious because of what's going on. But I'm hoping that we can learn a little bit more about you in our random round. Oh, okay. And so I've got percentile dice here, and you can pick either tie-dye or pink with mermaid green sparkles. What sounds good to you? Oh, let's go with pink with mermaid green sparkles since this is a fairy tale day. Oh, I think that's quite fitting. So let's see here what we end up with. 18. What gives you peace? That's a hard one. (laughs) What gives me peace? Those rare occasions when I actually manage to trust the Holy Spirit, I I, I struggle to find peace. I I admit that. I'm not a very peaceful person, and my spirit is always agitated about something or another. But on the days when I, or not even days, more like hours, when I manage to just turn it over, say, okay, I can't do this. You're going to have to do it. And he's like, you thought you could do it in the first place? (laughs) Yeah, you'd think I'd learn one of these days. I got better. (laughs) We're all working on it. Like you said, it's that constant, 
I have been converted. I am being converted and I hope to be converted. Exactly. 49. What accomplishment are you the most proud of? Well, other than my children and having, you know, my, my beautiful family, I think it's Chrism Press starting that venture that hopefully will grow to fill a hole that's that we've received to do exactly the things that we've been talking about to inspire and enliven the imaginations of both Catholics and Christians, as well as the broader world. I think that's, that's the thing that I'm most proud of. It's a pretty big deal. I hope so. I mean, right now we're pretty tiny, so I'm not sure how many other people see it as a big deal, but to us, it's a big deal. Well, it's impacted my life greatly. So that's all that matters. <laughs> it is though, really, because if you can impact one person, how much, you know, what more can you ask for? That's what I ask with my podcast. So I, I get that. I get that because each person is of such inestimable value. Exactly. And people always say, how do you know when you've succeeded? Well, it's when you've touched somebody, you know, when somebody walks away better than they were before because they've read your book. And that you might walk away from it better. Exactly. Well, that, from them having read your book and then talking to them about it. Oh, gosh. How completely invaluable is that? You can't put a price on that. It's beautiful. So the next question is quite important. It's, do you have a favorite pen or pencil? The one that's not out of ink. <laughs> and the one that I can currently find and has not been stolen from my desk by my children. <laughs> there you go. So it's definitely not a colored one because those ones are too much fun to write with. Yeah. My kids are constantly stealing my pens. So any pen that is currently here and has ink in it is my favorite. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. What kind of tree would you be? What kind of tree would I Well, I guess I would be a live oak because they're beautiful and from Louisiana and last forever. And... Hopefully I'll be immortal one day. <laughs> well, you will be. It's just a matter of where. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm hoping for the, the life, the eternal life part. That would be rather nicer than the alternative, wouldn't it? I agree. More than rather nice. <laughs> my last question for all of my guests is what gives you hope right now? What gives me hope right now? are the people around me and seeing everybody continue to work toward the truth, the good, and the beautiful in whatever way they're doing it. So my colleagues at Chrism Press, my colleagues at the parish where I work, I'm the music director at a parish, you know, my family, my friends, just seeing everybody keep going and not give up in the midst of everything everybody's been through in the past two to three years. Yeah, what more can you ask for? That people are still telling jokes and having fun and doing their best. It is beautiful. Well, Karen, I'm so glad that we were able to get together and have this conversation today. 
thank you so much for having me, Jane. It's been lovely. (laughs) Thank you. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.